with patients is another another aspect of how we need to think about changing medical education. And I would would add to to what my two colleagues have already said that there are some constraints that now surround the approach to providing the experience and the skills and the knowledge base that physicians will will need to to care for the patients in the future to to pick up on the the, the diminishing value of facts. I think a framing issue is that in in 2014, it's estimated that the body of medical knowledge is uh, doubling uh, every 18 to 24 months. Or, or put another way, as our students enter our traditional four-year period of undergraduate medical education, the, the amount of knowledge out there will have grown fourfold from the time they begun. And so you do need an approach for how do you harness that, those insights into uh, the ability of the physician to, um, uh, to deliver uh, today's cutting-edge care. On a different level, uh, there is embedded also, I think, some competition in values. Uh, I would submit that when the four of us here who have a medical degree were uh, completing our undergraduate medical education, one of, the, one of the, the principal values in medicine was autonomy, the physician having responsibility. And to a degree, we hope that doesn't go away because the physician needs to own the responsibility of, of the um, the care they're delivering for their patients. But at the same time, that cannot be to the exclusion of the value of collaboration uh, and of working as a team, because with autonomy alone, no one is capable of actually delivering the best that medical care has to offer today. Well, and speaking to that collaboration, I believe it was in our conversation, Dr. Mitchell, and several of you mentioned just uh, how much collaboration is happening with the different system heads to, you know, kind of share best practices and eliminate uh, having to do it twice or save time and money. Uh, how beneficial has that been to you, given in your rural part of the state? Well, it's been extremely beneficial. I'd say two things. First thing, where is this Harvard place? Because it seems like everybody went there <laughs> except the senator and me. That's the first thing. No, uh, the, the, the students that get medical education, I'll say healthcare education in Texas, are blessed because we have phenomenal universities for it. By and large, it's cheaper to go to school here to get trained than it is uh, just about anywhere else. And so our students have a lot of choice. And as a consequence, we wind up getting a lot of students that we get a lot of applications that come in from out of the state. So we're blessed in return. But the problem at the end of the day that all of us face, that everybody faces, it doesn't matter if it's in higher education, doesn't matter if it's health education, whatever it is, is there's a finite amount of resources. And so one of the things that typically has happened is everybody has done something in silos. Within a, within a university, you will have medical students and nursing students and pharmacy students and allied health students being educated in silos with some redundancy built in within a university. And then amongst the universities, you have a lot of redundancy built in where, uh, where Texas Tech system will do something, University of Texas system will do something, A&M system will do something. And uh, at the end of the day, as resources become more and more limited, it becomes really important for us to say, number one, it's important from a patient care standpoint that you break down some silos amongst the various schools, meaning nursing, medicine, pharmacy, and the like. They need to, they need to work together, uh, the team-based approach that we were discussing earlier. Um, but in, in addition to that, from a cost-saving standpoint, it doesn't make sense for one of the systems to develop something and another have to do the same thing, same thing, same thing. So what we're trying to do is in areas where we know that the accrediting organizations really want an emphasis, if there's something that one system has already done, then we try to share it with the others so that they don't have to pay to do the same thing again. Because at the end of the day, 
all of us have to sit down in front of the, in front of the folks in Austin, uh, the legislature, and say we're being good stewards of the money and directing it in the most effective way so that it doesn't matter if students are getting educated in any of the system uh, schools, they're getting as good an education as possible. It's evident in listening to all of you, there is a great need. And Senator Watson, you obviously recognize that need in spearheading Prop 1 and what became the Dell Medical Center. What, uh, what were you hearing back in 2011, 2012, leading up to that vote? Well, it was even before that. There, there was um, <clears throat> great discussion for many, many years about why is there not a medical school at the University of Texas at Austin. Similarly, there had been discussion for many, many years about why do we not have a medical school in the Rio Grande Valley. And we, we recognized opportunities there. But in addition, the need is pretty obvious. And so, for example, uh, in the early 2000s, there was a big call, a national call, for more medical education to, to, so we would have more doctors. Um, and in Texas, they, there was an effort to achieve that. Uh, arguably, that goal was achieved. But even so, in Texas, we're still below the national average on the number of doctors per 100,000. So that, for example, and I think these numbers are, are accurate, uh, the national average is around 240 doctors per 100,000. In Texas, it's 170. And in the Valley, it's 107. And in the area of pediatrics and uh, psychology, we're below 60% of the national average. So, so there's a need for, for more medical education, more doctors. Austin, and in Central Texas, with its growth, similar to what's happening in the state. I mean, with, with the growth that we're seeing in the state, that problem of number of doctors per 100,000, we can fall further behind if we're not careful. So, there, so we wanted to address that issue. At the same time, we, we were always advocating for, and I have continued to advocate for, for not just a medical school in Austin, but how do we get to a medical school in the Rio Grande Valley? And that's the, the one medical school, that, that's, they're not here today, but that's one of the medical schools that will open uh, by 2016, thus increasing the potential for the number of doctors in the state. And, and frankly, we needed to come up with a new playbook on how we, we did it. Uh, because Texas, uh, we were talking earlier in the green room, that Texans have been trained that you have to do it the same way every time. And Texans have been trained that if somebody gets something, you're probably going to lose something. And so there was a zero-sum game when it came to medical education. And so we attempted to come up with a new way of doing it, and I think broke down the barrier to if Austin gets one, that means the Valley doesn't get one. If the Valley gets one, that means Austin doesn't get one. And broke down the barrier that somehow by Austin and the Valley having a medical school, it somehow did damage to the existing medical schools. How does it change the dynamic with your different systems as far as those two schools coming online? It damages ours. <laughs> <laughs> That's that lack of Harvard education. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he hit the nail on the head. We need more physicians. We need more physicians. And one of the things that he didn't talk about is the fact that we've got about 20-25% according to the Texas Medical Association of the current workforce of physicians is at retirement age. Yeah. So there's another problem that's about to hit us as well. So we are in uh, desperate need of creating more physicians. Now the kicker with it uh, for all of us 
is that right now we're about at parity as far as the number of graduating physicians every year and the number of residency slots, PGY1 slots. And uh, that's the next big thing that we all have to address is graduate medical education because, again, it's cheap to go to medical school in Texas, which is a great thing. But the state doesn't want to be in the habit of educating them here and sending them, heaven forbid, to Oklahoma or, you know, New Mexico or Louisiana. We want them here. We want them to stay here. So. Residency slots did come up in all my conversations sure. with you, uh, all of you. What do you make of that as far as now there's two new schools, two new batches of graduates, you know, in the future? and maybe the same number of slots? Well, without question to pick up on Ted's point, unless you have you know, some uh, you know, sort of parallel expansion of your capacity to provide that next and essential step in the, uh, in the um, process of really preparing a physician to be out in the community and practice, you haven't really accomplished much. We know by, uh, uh, by national figures and, and figures right here in Texas that the single closest um, parallel or, or predictor of where a physician will end up practicing is where they do their residency. So uh, to, to take up uh, Ted's point, if they're leaving the state, there's a good chance they may not come, come back. Uh, I do think it's important uh, to appreciate that um, the challenges we have in delivering health care to a growing population, a diverse population, in, in, in diverse in many different ways, uh, the number of physicians and other providers is a a cornerstone um, dimension of that problem. But it is not the only problem. And as the state is increasingly aware of that and is thinking about how to expand the pipeline through uh, expanded number of medical schools, uh, positions in medical schools, and ho hopefully ultimately parallel increases in graduate medical education, that does not per se uh, solve the problem of what the distribution of those physicians Absolutely. is within the state and across the balanced need of the total variety of caregivers that you need to care for, for a population. And there are a lot of other factors which are impacting the decisions which uh, determine the outcome of those issues. And so as much as we ought to be thinking about increasing the pipeline, it is also how do you uh, put in the right um, uh, sort of policies around that pipeline that ultimately serve to provide not only a well-trained but a, a, a physician workforce which meets the, the broad needs of the state. A couple of things along those lines that are positive um, and, and with regard to some of the funding for graduate medical education in the legislature. Um, without getting into the, and I'm happy to, but without getting into the, deep, the weeds of the formulas and what's happened and what happened in, in 2011 when the formulas were slashed by 37%, leaving us in a situation where uh, hopefully we'll try to get back, although I'm, I'm a little discouraged that, that the, the, form, the funding that has been recommended or requested by the coordinating board is in an, an exceptional item, as though that's something exceptional we ought to do as opposed to being part of the fundamental of what we ought to do. But, but set that aside, a couple of things that have been, first of all, a medical school in the Rio Grande Valley is a place where I was just talking in terms of the number of, uh, per 100,000, we know that's an area where we need better disbursement. Um, so that, that is a good example of that. In addition, with regard to graduate medical education, part of the new playbook that we operated here that is being incorporated, I think, to what they're a lot of what they're doing in the Valley is that in order to get that medical school and get that all operating, the hospitals down there are having to agree and have agreed to increasing the number of residency slots. So a lot of people don't know, but even with the budgeting that the state does in uh, graduate medical education, 
that it ends up being, depending upon who you talk to, only about 5 to 10% of the cost of that. You get a little bit of federal money. But, for example, here, about $45 million a year comes from Seton in, in providing that. Well, the hospitals down there are now going to agree to do that. So that's another example of what they're talking about that's helping with that. In addition, there was some very good funding work done, I think, in helping target some of the graduate medical education so that you have some places that want to get started. They have Medicare opportunities. They could get started, but they don't have the, the funds to, to crank the engine. And so the state was trying to put money in to do that as well, which I think will also help with disbursement. But he's exactly right. We need, we need more and more of that. Yeah. Ultimately, though, we, you know, just as Dan said, we need to look at what is drawing people away from rural areas and what's drawing people away from primary care. Um, no matter how many new physicians we train, um, if it's so much more attractive to go into to specialty practice than primary care, they will go that way. So the, how we change the incentives to make primary care more attractive as a, as a final specialization um, is going to be critical to solving this problem. What sort of incentives do you foresee? Or well, I, don't, I think actually uh, primary care, we forced primary care docs into, uh, into a job that, that, that isn't fun anymore. Um, I mean, all docs really do it um, because, at least in part, they really enjoy the encounter with patients. But because of the way um, the system has worked with the fee-for-service system, we've, we've slowly reduced the time that any physician gets in front of a patient. This is particularly true for primary care. So the encounters are really more, you know, the physician's back to the patient typing in the information so that they can get the small amounts that they can collect for that encounter. It, we really have to rethink, you know, what do we need physicians for, including in primary care? And then think about where can we use technologies and other practitioners to support them. So this is where the, the team education becomes critical to re-envisioning how we should best provide care. That new care provision can be better for, the, for physicians, better for patients, and also better for our system, cheaper. Um, and in, but we haven't allowed that to happen in our current fee-for-service system. And I'll tell you something. In the tech system that we did several years ago, because it's exactly as they said, you know, once, once students get into medical school, uh, when we've surveyed our students coming into medical school, about a third of them think they want to be Marcus Welby. And I always say that to see how old everybody is. Yeah. Uh, but, I don't know what you're referring to. But, yeah. <laughs> but about, a third of, about a third of students want to be primary care physicians. That's what they want to do. And then as soon as they get in and start talking to their colleagues and start seeing what the specialists are doing and this and that, uh, by the time they graduate, the, the number is cut more than, by more than half of the folks that wind up wanting to do primary care. What, what we set up out there was called a family medicine accelerator track to get the students on the front end that have an interest in primary care and say, okay, here's, here's the deal. If you want to go into family medicine, what we're going to do is during all of your downtime, all of your upcoming downtime, we are going to focus you on family medicine. We're going to put you in family medicine clinics, have you work with our family medicine faculty, and what we're going to wind up doing over the period of the next few years, instead of having a four-year medical education, we're going to pile it into three. We're going to compact it back into three, all of the extra time focused on family medicine. So you'll get a four-year medical education, uh, you'll finish it in three, and then we will uh, go ahead and scholarship you for another year. So you get a four-year medical education in three years, and we'll, you'll only pay for two. And then we'll put you right into one of our family medicine programs. And we just had our first round of graduates this past year with that. 
And as they got into their family medicine programs, uh, if you looked at their in-service examinations, they were, they were better than their peers nationally. So they're very motivated to do that. And if you look at them being able to get in practice a year early uh, and the money they saved, uh, our Rawls College of Business was calculating out about what it would mean to it. It would mean about 250000 to that person to be able to go ahead and move forward and do this. That's one way of doing it. The problem with it is, as Clay just said, once they get out there, there is everything that happens about the practice of medicine that has nothing to do with the patient. So it has to do with meaningful use. It has to do with dealing with insurance companies and dealing with Medicare and dealing with Medicaid and all these other things. And there was an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine just a few months ago, and we, we all know about texting and driving. The, the, this, this editorial was on what they called texting while doctoring. And it's this whole thing about doing this while you've got somebody sitting over here that's kind of in the way, and that's called a patient. But I'm having to do this to make my money. And it really is for the family medicine doctor. And we talk about primary care in general, but in rural America, we need fam- well-trained family medicine docs. We need Marcus Welby's. And uh, there are so many things that work against it for them that they truly have to have an absolute desire to be out there doing this in order to put up with a lot of the stuff. But our FMAT program has been a great way to do that. Now, <clears throat> Senator Watson, <clears throat> I'm not saying anything to you. I'm just saying this to the audience. One of the problems that we have with the FMAT program is that no good deed goes unpunished because we graduate them in four years, or in three years instead of four, so we lose year of formula funding. Oh, yeah. And so there's a disincentive to the medical school to even do that. Uh, so we have to limit the number of students we put in FMAP because we're going to lose a year of funding from the state uh, when we do it. Well, speaking of funding structures, many of you mentioned that again in, in my conversations with you prior. Dr. Giroir, what are you looking at as far as alternative uh, funding mechanisms uh, for your school? Well, He I told th- me in the back they were looking at some banks to knock over. Yeah. <laughs> That's just A&M, though. <laughs> I was trying to get... Being around this campus, I thought I'd apply for a loan from UT Austin. <laughs> thought that might be a really good way to go. Um, we're all, of course, we're all dealing with with uh, with, with funding streams, and uh, I think we all have a, a couple of major concerns. And that is, uh, you know, I have multiple colleges in in, in our health science center, our, our dental school, the Texas A&M University Baylor College of Dentistry, uh, has a 42 percent underserved uh, minority. Uh, uh, class, which which is unbelievable, it far surpasses uh, the the nation's a, a, even the second. But we do that because we have the least expensive tuition. So we really are trying, and I know Ted's trying to do this, and everyone, and I think everyone is is trying to make sure that we don't th- do this on the backs of students. Uh, if we want to have a diverse workforce uh, that comes from all segments of society and are not burdened with a half a million dollars in debt, so they can go into primary care. We really want to keep our tuition as low as possible. So uh, most of us are highly dependent on uh, some amount of state funding. But I think uh, it's not really driven by the funding per se, but we at A&M, and I know all of us, are really entering into a lot of different partnerships and taking the lead in areas that a medical school might not have done uh, before. Uh, A good example, one of our core competencies is the intersection, as you might have guessed, between engineering and medicine. And one great way for that intersection to meet is the scale-up and manufacture of vaccines that are so critical for our protection against, for example, pandemic influenza. The fact that 100 million people didn't die in 2009 was just a result of we got lucky that the virus wasn't as bad, but 26% of the world got infected. We have Ebola raging in West Africa. 
Uh, it's an epidemic. It's one airline ticket away from being here, but yet we don't have the countermeasures for that. So this was an area that typically only a drug company would, quote, go into, but we used our expertise in engineering and medicine together, and we brought a $3 billion federal contract to the state. Now, that, will, that has $23 million in the first four years to train students. It trains medical students, it trains quality students, it trains a lot of people at community colleges to be in this area. Um, so this was, this was, again, a tremendous asset for the state of Texas, $41 billion in impact, 6,000 jobs, a national security center here, and it's something that, again, medical schools or health science centers can, can take the lead of. More importantly, uh, all this federal money that's coming in gives the state of Texas an infrastructure that we've never had before. So, uh, and, and a good partner of ours is MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, one, one of the tremendous places, you know, a godsend to the state and the patients all over. Uh, because we have this manufacturing center that can work with them, we're manufacturing personalized vaccines for cancer in College Station, bringing them back to MD Anderson so their patients can benefit instead of losing those innovations that would go to the East <coughs> Coast or the West Coast or to China or, or to India. So I just give that as an example. I think, I, at least I don't think any of what we're doing is driven by money uh, per se. It's driven by trying to discover novel ways, and I know Southwestern is doing this tremendously, to get new innovations to patients without going through so many obstacles that are uh, economically unfeasible or we lose control of great innovations to a third party who may choose to do them or not do them for reasons that have nothing to do with the patient. Trying to keep it in-house as far as the different treatments? Well, to pick up on Brett's point, we admire what's been done at A&M, particularly in the vaccine area. It's, 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 you know, it's innovative and, and, uh, and really breathtaking what it can do for impact. We, too, have a very vigorous uh, tech uh, transfer uh, program, um, which uh, principally is driven with the goal of being sure our discoveries don't languish on a bench but get out into the world and help people. But it is also a source of an economic engine to uh, the economy. So just uh, last week we announced a startup, um, first major uh, initiative funded by a uh, uh, a biotech company called Calico. Calico stands for California Life Company. So this is a company in California bringing California dollars to set up uh, a new startup. And, and, and by the way, the, the uh, principal backers of Calico is Google. So it is an engine to bring dollars into the state uh, and, and create an economic engine that we've not had. To, to, if I can come back to the, the question that uh, you, you posed just a, a few moments ago about you know, what are you doing to deal with the, the challenges for funding our, our missions. Uh, I think there's you know, no one solution that any one of us has. It's a combination of strategies. Certainly one is to get efficient and to make the best use of resources, and we certainly at UT Southwestern have dedicated an enormous amount of attention to finding the efficiencies that we can in our operations so that the dollars are most attached to the mission. The other for us is in delivering healthcare efficiently and effectively. I think, as is true for each of my colleagues' institutions on this panel, and in contrast to a couple of the other health-related institutions, we do not receive a dollar of support from the state to go into clinical operations and facilities. We do have a very vigorous health care system, which is essential to the education of our students, also as a further engine to our research programs. 
but also it's a source of support. There's other other um, other um, uh, other sources of support, including the NIH uh, budget, are under constant uh, pressure. Now, the ability to find the funds out of delivery of healthcare to subsidize these other missions is increasingly challenging, and yet it's still an essential part of our, uh, you know, of, of our solution uh, to to the question that you posed. Dr. Johnston, you brought up funding uh, when we exchanged emails prior to today, and that was funding innovations. I mean, that was the first thing you mentioned. What is going on uh, in preparation for the Dell Hospital to come online, and how does Dell Children's uh, factor into that? Yeah, so, so to, to pick up, just to sort of reiterate what you just said, Dan, I mean, most places um, require the, any net that they get from clinical revenue in order to cross-fund their other missions, so, so research and education. So here, um, we, and in order to do that, they hire a bunch of physicians, they have relationships with hospitals, that may mean owning them, but often it means in some partnership with a, a hospital entity. So um, what that does is it bakes us into the current system just by, by necessity. And, and there's just no way around it. We then have to play the same game that everyone else does in terms of playing this fee-for-service game of, of uh, how do we work with payers and, and all of that. So one of the things that we're trying to do is see whether we absolutely have to do that here. Is there a way that we can get paid instead of for the direct provision of care, the widgets of primary care, the high-end procedures, all of that stuff, that we get paid based on, on the innovations that add value to the health system. So that then becomes a, um, a, a major focus of then how we, how, who we hire and how we interact with physicians in this community who are already providing excellent care. Um, and what might that look like? Well, if we improve health and society values that, or if we reduce cost and keep health the same, there's a huge amount of value to patients in doing that and to society. No one right now is incentivized to provide the leadership in those areas other than to make their own operations more efficient to increase their profit, you know, the, what they can net in the care that they provide in the fee-for-service system. So we, we want to sort of build that innovation cycle directly into how our business works. All right, so that's the f first part of it. So it's not just new drugs and all that. It's also care models. It's, you know, uh, the t how the teams care, care for the patients, how technology is used, all of that as well. Um, so Dell Children's, so, I mean, we're, we're fortunate to have um, uh, Dell Children's be part of our um, teaching hospitals. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, it has become, without uh, UT Southwestern um, uh, providing academic oversight, um, but um, also on its own, developing uh, really spectacular expertise in a variety of different areas. Not all, and needs to be fleshed out, but also um, being an excellent training ground for, uh, for, for residents and for, for medical students as well, coming from mostly UTMB. Um, so we're, we're pleased the residencies will convert over to um, uh, UT Austin residencies there and in the other hospitals in Austin. In, uh, in November, December. And the faculty also will convert over to UT Austin faculty at that time. And we'll continue to look at it and uh, develop it further to provide the tertiary care that it does, but also uh, in this new innovation model that I mentioned. And one more, I, uh, oh, go ahead. 
I, I know it, it doesn't pass this audience, but I spent most of my career at UT Southwestern, a fantastic place. And what I think we are realizing now that, you know, we're meeting on a regular basis. You know, we're telling inside jokes about each other's families now. I mean, that's how, how close we're getting. We um, tell more about his than he tells about Yeah, us. exactly. Well, I deserve that. But uh, um, I, I think what you have here among the medical schools, you know, often I he- you hear, oh, we're adding a medical school in Austin. We're adding one in, in, in South Texas. And it's just like they're all the same, and we're just adding them up. I think you've got, and I've really learned to appreciate in this last year, you've got several real laboratories for innovation, that these medical schools all have really distinct differences and expertises. Um, you've heard about Southwesterns for a long time. UT now here, associated with you know, one of the premier universities in the world. Uh, Texas Tech, with all they've been doing in telemedicine and, and reaching out in rural, us with an agricultural background, integrating nutrition and preventative care. Um, I think one good thing I would say to, to, to anybody in the legislature is I think there's an incredible spirit of cooperation, and we have actual plans to be piloting programs based on our expertise, sharing them to see what works and doesn't work, because when it comes down to things, we, I think we've all stopped pointing the finger at, finger at fix the health care system, uh, the rates of uh, diabetes are too high. I think we're all pointing it back at ourselves right now, whether it's innovation, whether it's incredible research at Southwestern, whether it's telemedicine nutrition. We're sort of saying, put, you know, put us in, Coach, that we are now the places to do the innovation and make a difference for the state of Texas. I agree. No, I think that's exactly right. You know, I'm, I'm very simple. You know, if you have no margin, you can have no mission. And that's the same thing in education. If we can't make, a, if we can't pay our bills, uh, we can't do what we're supposed to do. And so part of this is making sure that we run efficiently. And if you look at administrative overheads of all these universities, they actually do quite well, quite well, relative to peers around the country. So we do try to run lean. Uh, but also, it is saying, uh, what, what is it that we can do between the different universities uh, that, that it doesn't make any sense to try to reproduce it? And how can we teach the providers that are under our care, the future providers, on how to uh, run effective practices? And I know that, you know, I'm sure that every school here uh, has components in that are now business-related for the students. Because one of the things about the medical education that we all got, there was zero in there about business. And in fact, it used to be that while you were in medical school, that was the time to learn everything esoteric you could. And order this, and order that, and order this. And there was never any... Uh, uh, check on why you might not want to order something. And so that type of mentality, when you're not very careful, follow somebody into practice. And, and it's really problematic, not because there's any nefarious plot. They've just not had the training otherwise to become efficient at what they're doing. And so a large part of the medical education now uh, is the business end of what's going on and learning how to deal with that while it's still effectively being an advocate for your patient. Listening, oh, go ahead. I just was uh, sitting wearing the hat I'm wearing, which is not being the, the only non-MD on the, the panel, but and being a member of the legislature, which may disqualify me from even talking in many instances. Uh, but uh, but two, two quick things. Number one is, the, from my vantage point, and particularly in what I've been trying to do over the last couple of years, watching the level of cooperation that's happening in medical education, I think there is a difference now than maybe was there a few years ago. We haven't said it out loud, but we ought to. And, and when, when Dean Johnston talks about 
the, the, some staff and residencies coming over in October or November from UT Southwestern, we've had pretty significant medical education in Austin, Texas without a medical school for the past several years because of UT Southwestern and the affiliation agreement they've had with Seton. Uh, and now the level of cooperation that's gone on between UT Southwestern and the new medical school at UT Austin is, is a very big factor in, in, in the success of that. The second thing I'll say is as we talk about all of this money, I'm going to take it back to the legislature because the truth of the matter is that the legislature, you, you can look at these numbers and they've put a lot more money into things like, we've put a lot more money into things like graduate medical education but we're still behind, and after the cuts of 11, we're behind on overall budget on GME and per resident, uh, we're by, by, by at least four years. I mean, we, we, we've, we've stayed behind. We keep hearing about this surplus that we're going to have in the next legislative session. My hope is that we will be able to restore and enhance what we need to do in terms of medical education and would think that that ought to be something that is at the front of the, the burner when, when we convene in January. You would think so, real quick, you would think so, Senator, just because of you know, our state's mantra of creating jobs and then listening to all your great innovations and programs. And then one of you gentlemen mentioned to me the term exporting physicians. You know, you're doing all this great work here, but then there aren't enough slots to keep them here and then ultimately if they come back or, or whatnot. Uh, Dr. Podolsky, you were going to? Yeah, I, I, I was going to make note of uh, some of the dynamics on the, uh, on the federal level, yeah. which will make a focus on that here in the state uh, all the more salient in terms of what, you know, what's being discussed in Washington and where to go for dollars right. uh, in cutting the federal budget. So um, as many here will know, but perhaps not all, uh, the main funding mechanism historically in this country for supporting graduate medical education has been tied to Medicare. Uh, slots were created, uh, but they've been frozen uh, for the last nearly 20 years, more than 15 years. They got frozen at a point where Texas had a disproportionately smaller share right. of those slots than California, New York, Massachusetts, and a few other states. They've been frozen. Now, that in some ways is the perverse good news in the fact that we don't have as many slots funded here. Uh, and historically, therefore, the burden has been to find funds from elsewhere, the hospitals themselves, the healthcare systems, the, and to a degree, the, the legislature. But in Washington, the discussion now is further, yes. further pressure on the funding of GME. Uh, there are other dimensions to it, as at least recommendations, some of which were highlighted in a report just issued uh, four or five weeks ago by the Institute of Medicine. But the common theme you hear when you visit Washington and talk to uh, our, our congressmen and our, our uh, senators, not ours, Texas, but the, 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 the broad uh, hour, uh, is uh, that the federal government should be doing less rather than more to support that. And the point being that, therefore, there will be more burden back here on Texas with its disproportionate challenge to expand its physician workforce. Yeah. Speaking to the federal government and at address this with some of you, but how has Obamacare factored, factored into, you know, med schools here in the state uh, and ultimately, you know, the money factor? Well, I mean, one of the things, I, and Brett said this a minute ago, uh, people look at the medical schools as if, they're, as if they're kind of monolithic 
things around. They're not. Every, every medical school in the state has a different flavor and has a different uh, set of opportunities and challenges. If you look at the, our service area for Texas Tech, uh, the westernmost 108 counties of the state, it's 49% of the state's geography, but only 12% of the population. Our challenges are distinctly different than they would be in the city of Houston or the city of Dallas or the city of Fort Worth or Austin. And so if you look at the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act was, um, the, the, the purpose was we have people that are uninsured. Because they're uninsured, they don't have access to care. Get them insurance, and they'll have access to care. And, it, it, you know, with, again, no, no nefarious plot about it, it was written by folks that had a very urban-centric view of what health care should be. Uh, if you go to rural America, if you go to rural West Texas, uh, if you live down in the Big Bend, you can have 100 insurance cards, and you have no access to care. Because our two biggest obstacles to, to access to care are our large geography and a lack of providers, neither of which is addressed by the ACA. And so for us, the challenge is very, very different. And so for us, the opportunities are different. The, the, uh, uh, the capacity to do things, uh, to expand our telemedicine programs things. So if you, if you, if you can't get them to come in, uh, get to where you can reach them at the closest point to where they live. This is really important because from an economic standpoint, people say, well, Ted, listen, you've only got 12% of the population out there. How in the world uh, at the state level can we really afford to focus on that 12% of the population when we have 88% of the population living on I-35 and over here? Uh, well, the fact is, if you look at the number one uh, beef producing place in the United States, Samarillo, Texas. And if you look at the uh, cotton production in the United States, Texas leads the nation by a long shot. Number two is Georgia, and we produce three times more cotton than Georgia. The vast majority of that is, is grown in eight counties around Lubbock, Texas. And uh, if you go down to the Permian Basin, we all know what they produce down there. Uh, and so it is the West Texas area that is providing the food, fiber, and fuel for everybody. And so it becomes critically important that you do things to take care of the country cousins out there. And I'm not talking about in the, in the population centers like Amarillo, Lubbock, Middle and Odessa. I'm talking about level land uh, out in Denver City in these small places where you have these tiny critical access hospitals that are barely making it, barely making it. And if those hospitals, when that hospital closes, you can watch that little town dry up and they fall into the next big town. And when that hospital closes they will fall into the next big town. And so we've got to do things to figure out ways to deliver care. So with something like meaningful use criteria, you may get a small physician group in a tiny town in West Texas that is, they have their clinic in an old bank building. They don't have the infrastructure, the literal infrastructure for IT to keep up with meaningful use. But if they don't hit it, they're going to start getting dinged on their payments. And so there's a lot of these things, and I think Dan said it, it's very complex. And there is absolutely not this cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all. But from our perspective, everybody here has something at their schools that they can offer that's a little bit different. And I think very complementary to one another. And, and that's why I think you know, having us talk amongst ourselves and having the health-related institutions interacting with the general academics. What Brett just said about their, their work with A&M is incredible. That's great stuff. Well, you know, ironically, uh, the, the short answer to the question of what impact does ACA had is, is not much. Um, in part, uh, in the absence of Medicaid expansion, that, that's a big part of the impact in other parts of the country where that, that has happened, uh, where the impact, you know, can 
can occur is if there are going to be major shifts from employer-based insurance uh, into the exchanges. It just hasn't happened to a degree to significantly change, uh, change it. But I, you know, Tez made a very important point. Uh, coverage does not equal access. And I was thinking as he was making the comment about the challenges to access in, in the more rural parts of the state, uh, that there are still incredible uh, barriers to access in the urban parts of the state. So you look in Dallas, and there are regions of Dallas which are terribly underserved. Um, that you, you don't see if you just look at the number of doctors per capita within there. That's one thing. And, and even in some of the areas where there are doctors, if 40% of physicians do not see patients who are covered by Medicare, mm-hmm. you know, you are challenged to find uh, your primary care physician. So, so there are, I give those as just two other examples of the totality of the, of the problem set, which ultimately are the challenge for Texans accessing uh, medical care. Uh, We have about five minutes until we start taking questions from the audience, so if you do have a question in mind, please line up at one of the two microphones. Uh, In the meantime, being that we are on the University of Texas Austin campus, Dr. Johnston figured it would be a good time to give us an update on the progress of the school and what uh, the ETA is. Sure, yeah, yeah. So we're, um, as you may have noticed, there's a lot of dust in a major thoroughfare (laughs) in and out of downtown. It's closed right now, which we've gotten, you know, some, some bad press about. That'll reopen by... They all just call their senator near as I can. So the, um, the construction's on schedule. The campus is to the south of the Irwin Center, um, so you can almost see it from here. Um, and it's, uh, you know, three new buildings and a hospital. Um, uh, so quite a bit of construction. It will be finished in the spring of 2016. Um, our application for accreditation is already in, so early. Uh, they'll come and review our program in the winter, and if all goes well, the first class will start in July of 2016. So it's a quick startup, but everything's going well so far. Great. Well, thank you all very much for good discussion, I think, good thorough discussion. Uh, can we have a round of applause for our panelists, please? And now we will open it up for questions. We'll go left to right. Ma'am? Hi, Lily from Austin. Um, I was just curious, and not really related to medical education, but uh, with the all-male panel, um, and most of the medical school graduation rates are 50% female, um, what are your thoughts on the lack of uh, female representation in the leadership? I, I just came where I was invited. <laughs> no, I think, I think you're right. So actually, medical schools are pretty close to 50-50 now. Um, and I don't, I don't know about yours. I bet yep. they are, right? Absolutely. So, but, Ours today is over 50. But my yeah. medical school class was not 50-50. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to take a while, actually, to get that to balance. But if you take a look at every step as you move through um, seniority in the medical system, so, you know, in academic medicine, moving from assistant to associate, associate to professor, cha- professor to chair, we, the, the ratio of women goes down, and it's not just dependent on the age cohort. So we do have a problem, and it's one that needs to be addressed, and it, you know, we've got to figure out how to make it first um, uh, recognizing that family responsibilities are, are, should be equally shared. That's, you know, we're not going to solve that, but then can we make medicine more family-friendly so that people can have more balanced lives? That's one thing that we know in general, when we, when we ask women, that's one of the reasons that they drop out as they go up. 
Um, and, and the other is just recognizing these, um, these longstanding biases that exist in terms of when we evaluate people for senior leadership positions, and we're you know, working hard to fight that. Awesome. Thank you. Ma'am? Hi. Um, my name is Mina, and I was just wondering um, how you guys think the new MCAT will affect the landscape of future medical students and physicians, and what cultural changes um, the new test reflects, if any. Well, I mean, it'll it'll be yet to be seen, but the idea behind it is trying to get a a, a group of students with a little bit of a broader-based education into the system. And I always jokingly tell our folks on our side, everybody focuses on MCAT, and if you look at MCAT scores in general nationwide, uh, I was looking at the AAMC data from 13. Uh, the average test, the average score for 94,000 students, all takers, including people who took it multiple times, was a 25. Now, on that big old bell curve of, of those scores, the kids that take the test and do lousy, really lousy, they don't take it again. The kids that take the test and do exceedingly well, they don't take it again. But that huge group up in the middle, they take it over and over and over and over to try to bump their score up. So the national average for the score is 25, uh, and if you look at getting into medical school, it's usually 27, 28 in that range. If you look at the state of Texas, they're all up above that. So we do real well currently with it. However, uh, you know, as, as, these, as the MCAT scores keep going up, at least I tell our folks, once you get up to MCAT scores above a certain amount, this is me personally. I'm not speaking for the Health Sciences Center of Texas Tech. This is Ted Mitchell. Uh, I said, we don't want to push them up higher. At some point, you're going to get people that will either cure cancer or they're going to be the Unabomber. (laughs) And you don't know which. I want people that can engage with patients. Thank you. Thank you. Sir? Hi. I'm Esteban Lopez. I'm a general internist and general pediatrician in San Antonio. Um, I'm going to ask a question of the panel, the physicians that are, how many of you are primary care physicians? I got one. <laughs> you're either you are or you're not. Yeah, I'm uh, not. I'm a pediatrician, but I went a little bit further. Yeah. Okay. So um, the, the reason I'm asking is uh, I went to medical school in Michigan, Michigan State University. I was looking, I just looked before I came up here to see where our schools were ranked on U.S. News and World Report with regards to primary care. Uh, medical schools, none of the Texas schools were in the top 20. Uh, when I went to Michigan State, Michigan State was ranked at number one uh, for primary care uh, training. I ended up going there because I was interested in primary care. Um, so I'm wondering, similar to Michigan State and other schools like Michigan State that have a strong focus on primary care, is there a move, especially an opportunity with the two new medical schools being built and potentially third with the osteopathic school in San Antonio, of uh, having a primary care-focused uh, medical school, since I did notice that there was mention of lack of good primary care physicians in the state of Texas. If I can answer that, I mean, yeah. there, are, there are what we call lies, there are damn lies, and there are statistics. Uh, if you look at the Association of American Medical Colleges, AAMC rankings for primary care, uh, our school ranks in the top 5% in the country. Because they asked the question, who is practicing in a primary care field five years after graduation? And so we're very proud of that. We had 51% of our class this last year going to primary care fields. So we've done that. And when the school was opened, again, uh, it, was, it was open to be a Marcus Welby school. So that is our focus. But I, and again, everybody here has said this. Part of the issue is right now we're doing, we think we're doing a really good job at getting them into primary care, but we need to do a lot better job at that. 
but relative to the peers, you know, we do well right now. Um, but, but, uh, but there are so many disincentives that are not educational disincentives, they're financial disincentives uh, to go into primary care. I, I, think, I think all of us have a primary care focus. And again, I, sh I share what Ted said, that the U.S. News and World Report, uh, it gives a part of the picture. It certainly doesn't give a full picture. And places like Texas Tech is particularly disadvantaged by the way they, uh, I would say, manipulate slightly the rankings. But uh, going back to the legislature, all of us have a scorecard. Uh, and part of that scorecard is what percentage of your class goes into primary care, what percentages of your class uh, stay in Texas over a period of time. And I think these are, uh, when I first got into this as an administrative level a year ago, I was pretty impressed because yeah. you're actually measuring the right things on that scorecard. And even what we might consider, you know, highly subspecialist kind of fancy schools like yours <laughs> put out a tremendous number of primary care physicians. This is not a, you know, high science school versus a, a more a, a younger school. All of us here do that. Well, so I, uh, I, I, you brought out the competitive uh, juice in one sense that uh, if, you, if you had said the top 25, you would have found UT Southwestern in there. So I even as a research-intensive school, UT Southwestern, by that ranking, and I think the caveat which has been said is really the operative yeah. point. That's not the real benchmark. Are we meeting our mission? But, uh, but it does reflect to a degree that we are committed to both uh, the research and subspecialty as well as primary care. And that's really the point I want to get to. We do have great primary care docs in Texas. We just don't have enough of them. But the same is true of about 18 different specialties. If you're a general pediatrician, at least in the North Texas, I don't know about San Antonio, and you've got a child who you want to have see a pediatric nephrologist, the only place you're going to find that is at UT Southwestern. So that just is reflective of the fact that we have broad shortages. And by benchmarking to national standards, in many of those specialty areas, there even have greater, uh, a greater gap with that national benchmark than we have in, in, in primary care, which is not to take away for a moment from the essential need to expand our primary care uh, physician workforce. Yeah, remember where I started on the numbers of hands-on physicians per 100,000. We're behind, and, and I don't know in every category, but, yeah. but, but when you just do primary and specialty, we're behind in primary and specialty. Primary care, we rank about 43rd out of 50. Uh, between 41 and 43, depending on, on right. what ranking you look at. So we, and that isn't even talking about the maldistribution of those uh, across the system. So I, again, all of us agree we need more physicians. We need more medical schools. Uh, this is a rising tide that will raise all boats. It has to be accompanied by GME. Um, and I think we've all said is, uh, and I can say, you know, when I was a subspecial, I was a pediatric intensive care physician, right? So subspecialty physician, but we have to, it's not just the number of physicians, but we've all said we've got to do care differently. We've got to explore different models with uh, many allied health professionals, uh, nurses, family nurse practitioners. Uh, how can pharmacists work on uh, optimizing medications? How do we use uh, devices? How do we use telemedicine? It's not just uh, the one-on-one. -on -one. It is truly a team sport. And we're all experimenting. I don't think any of us know exactly how to do that yet. But we all have our own experiments on how to make the next few years a really innovative time, not just in, in the high science, which we've all done, but, but in primary care delivery. How do you make this work for the state? One less plug for Michigan oh. State. Their chancellor is a woman and a primary care physician. 
Thank you. That's up go, in North go, Texas. Go Spartans. Not in northern in Ma'am, good afternoon. My name is Linda Frost, and I have a question about behavioral health. Uh, we know that most people who seek help for an addiction or for a mental health challenge initially go to a primary care doc. And we also know that for people with serious medical conditions who are getting specialty care, it's not uncommon to have that care jeopardized by an addiction or a mental health challenge. Do any of you have plans to improve training in behavioral health for all of your medical students and not just those who specialize in psychiatry? I think everybody, you know, particularly yes. if you're, yeah, the short answer is yes, you do, because if you're trying to train good primary care physicians, that's a significant part of what they do, period, end of story. Uh, we actually have a rotation at the Betty Ford Center uh, that our students participate in uh, when they're going, when our, our medical students as they go through psychiatry, that gives them an exposure actually not just to, uh, you know, kind of the rich and famous folks going to Betty Ford, but to professionals that are part of what they call their caduceus program. So looking at their own colleagues and stuff that have had issues, and I'm talking about uh, physicians, dentists, nurses from around the nation that are in there. And it gives, it's a very eye-opening experience for folks out there. Uh, but I will tell you that, and Senator Watson said this, if you want to talk about a, a deficit, the deficit in mental health care is more dramatic than the deficit in primary care. It's really dramatic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good, thank you. Ma'am. Hi, my name is Grace Shemaine. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner, so go nurse practitioners. My concern is uh, there's a great, I was wondering how y'all could help with the coordination of electronic medical records between businesses, hospitals, schools, the state, all the services that people need. I, where it's a great difficulty for me in my job. Yeah. I I think this is a critical need. I mean, it doesn't matter what community you're in, it's a critical need. And just the fact that it is, this is, makes up nearly 20% of our economy and we have, we're relying on data for the operation of our business that still includes handwritten notes and, and a lack of information about you know, what happened even yesterday at a different emergency room. It's just, mm -hmm. and, and lives really depend on having better information. Also, once you've built that infrastructure, you can then use it to help to prioritize whole communities around the issues that are most relevant to them, to really start to identify where the problems are and then go for them, and then test interventions in that setting so that when you make a difference, you know. And if you're not making a difference, you know that. And that currently is not possible either. So no, I think we absolutely have to do that. It, that is something, again, that we're trying to do in Austin. I'm sure all of you all are doing the same thing. But the, you know, that's an advantage of being next to you know, really spectacular informatics and being at a juncture where the cities really said, gosh, help us figure out how to do this better. We want to be innovative. We want to take care of everybody in the city and understanding the importance of information technology in, in addressing that need. Thank you. One last, uh, yeah. We just have a few minutes. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, Bill Kelly with Mental Health America of Greater Houston. So my question will be to the lawmaker who affects the budget on the panel. Uh, Senator Watson, one of the uh, uh, studies that came out of the last legislative session, House Bill 1023, dealt specifically with the mental health workforce. That report came out in September. One of the things I think your panel would be very excited to hear called for a very robust funding of GME spots to help us catch up with that lag that you mentioned. Uh, with that, one of the recommendations was to expand the physician loan repayment program uh, for specific 
mental health specialties. Right now, only psychiatrists would qualify for that. Uh, and Attorney General Abbott recently came out in support of different uh, loan repayment options specifically for mental health. As a lawmaker, is that something on your radar for uh, graduate medical education? Absolutely. And uh, see you in January. <laughs> if not before then. <laughs> Ma'am, last question. Hi, Cynthia Leonardos. I'm an internal medicine physician, and I did my training all here in Texas, Baylor and um, Baylor and Houston, and UT in San Antonio. So um, my question is, um, there's a lot of great discussion here about how we're changing our medical education. So what I see is, you know, great high-quality physicians, you know, the goal is great high-quality physicians coming into the workforce. Do you all feel a responsibility to help maintain those physicians in the clinical care space? Because what I see, my, my peers that I did medical school and residency with, in primary care, they're trying to figure out how to get out of primary care, yeah. to go into an administrative mm -hmm. position, to go into a non-clinical uh, position. So what do our academic institutions and medical training programs, how could they help us stay in clinical practice? Thank you. Well, I mean, I think that's not, some, that's not an issue which can be exclusively or even, I think, primarily owned by medical schools or academic medical centers, except to set an example. And I think it was Clay who, who, who really touched on this in, a, in an important way. It is creating an environment which, where it's a sustainable, uh, it is a sustainable career, and that is buttressing the physician with a team uh, and resources uh, that uh, offset this, what has accumulated over time and continues to accumulate of the added burden beyond the responsibilities which really do need to fall to the physicians. But again, we can set an example, but that needs to be out there in the healthcare delivery systems way uh, away from uh, the, uh, the academic centers because that's where most care should be and will be delivered. And you know, another experiment that, that we have been asked to do is to, you know, basically, I don't know if you all know this, but a, a portion of our funding comes from the voters of Travis County who voted to increase their property tax in order to have a medical school here, which is pretty remarkable, especially as it was at the end of a, of a, a nasty recession. Um, so that kind of gives us a mandate. Um, and, and the mandate that was part of that was to provide high-quality care for everyone. So that changes the way we think about our role in the community. So then we're starting to think more about you know, a model healthy city and then the role the medical school might play, not just with the docs that are on its payroll, but with all the docs in the community. And so yes, we're interested in how one does that then. How does one create the incentive structures, um, negotiate with payers on behalf of community physicians to change the model to, to make care better and um, quality of life both the patients and the docs better. And with that, we will call it a wrap. Uh, but we appreciate it. Great discussion, great questions. Thank you all so much. We appreciate it. It was great. Great to see you. Yes.